Let us pray as we begin. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our text this week, which Tess always reads so well when she reads, uh, is in many ways a continuation of the theme that Joy, who preached last week, set for us. It's the theme of discipleship. And more specifically, it's the theme of the cost of discipleship. If discipleship is really the, the process of learning how to follow Jesus, then the reality of costly discipleship is, is that to follow Jesus will cost us something. And if the Gospels are really to be taken seriously, then to follow Jesus is likely to cost us a great deal. Last week we studied the rich young ruler, and Jesus is really quite clear with him. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor. If you mean to follow me and receive eternal life, you're going to have to become like a child and become totally dependent on me and stop being dependent on yourself. That's quite costly, especially for that man. On the surface... The cost of discipleship in our passage today might be more than many of us can handle. It appears as if Jesus minimizes, sloughs off, or, or even disowns his own family in a very public manner. Now, we might wrestle with the idea of giving up earthly goods and riches while ultimately understanding that and saying, yeah, I can understand how that makes sense. But now, is Jesus really going after our families? Is he really going to ask me to disown and dishonor my family for his sake? Because that might just be too costly. And I think I'm not alone in saying that. Well, in order to understand this difficult passage and make sure that we're understanding Jesus correctly, I want to look at two sets of people that are in this passage today. The first one is Jesus' family, starting in verse 20. And the crowd came together so that they could not even eat. When his family heard of it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. Here's Jesus' family, his mother and brothers, and, and they're simply looking out for their family member, right? They're just looking out for Jesus. It says that the house has become so crowded that Jesus and his disciples couldn't even eat their meal. And most of us read this as a positive indication of the kind of popularity that Jesus has earned by his teaching and his ministry. But his family obviously took this another way, and you might as well if it was your family member. They see this as a threat to their son or their brother. It says that they sought to restrain him. That's actually not strong enough a word. The, the true sense of this word is they wanted to seize him and take him into custody. That's what that means. The point is they didn't simply want to warn him or exhort him or come in and say, hey, you might want to cut this a little short and come out and get some fresh air. They wanted to pull him out by his ears, pull him out of that place to a safe place and in their keeping. They show up later on in the passage, verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent, him and called, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, and they're asking for you, Jesus. By the end of this passage, Jesus' family is outside of the crowded house, and they're sending messages to Jesus saying, Young man, get out here now. Helicopter parent, overprotective siblings, worrisome loved ones, 
perhaps. But I think that we can agree that the motivations of these family members are probably pretty good, right? They're genuinely concerned for someone that they love. they motivated by love and concern, which are good things. It's simply that their priorities are misappropriated. Jesus' ministry and gospel message are surely the most important things that are happening here, or for that matter, that have happened ever in this world. His family is well-intentioned, but their priorities are skewed. That's the first group, well-intentioned family with skewed priorities. The second group is the scribes. Go back to verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. Jesus called to them, called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. I wish I had time to get into the parable, the, the fullness of this parable, but suffice it to say, in a place full of people, the scribes are trying to trap Jesus into giving an incriminating answer to the charge of being possessed by Satan. And here we see a great intersection of two regular aspects of Jesus' everyday ministry. First, we witness the accusation of Jesus' power coming from some forbidden place. And that was a common occurrence for Jesus. Second, we see Jesus identifying himself as the one who is opposed to the work of Satan rather than one who is in union with him. The scribes, like Jesus' family, are opposed to what Jesus is doing. They don't like what Jesus is doing. But unlike his family, their motives are not pure. I mean, clearly Jesus is doing miracles and and work that cannot be explained in any other way. They've seen the power of his ministry, and they fear it. And so they accuse him of doing the devil's work. But he says, if, if I'm working for Satan, then Satan's destroying himself because Jesus' power does not come from the depths of darkness, but from the Holy Spirit at work within him. The work of the Holy Spirit is to bind up Satan and his demons and to usher in the new rule of God. So the scribes are also suffering from a confusion of priority. This is a particularly dangerous confusion of priority. Remember, these are Jewish scribes. These are men of God, men of the Word. And they're more concerned with personal holiness and being right than seeing God in the flesh standing right in front of them. These scribes act maliciously and recklessly because of their skewed priorities. It's overt. You know, there is another word for misaligned priorities. And that word actually comes from our scriptures. The word is idolatry. Skewed priorities is idolatry. According to preacher and author Tim Keller, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Keller reminds us that good things can be idols too if they come between us and what is best for us, which is God alone. Anything can be an idol, a hobby, a church, a job, a boyfriend or girlfriend, a husband or wife, a brother or sister, a parent or a child, all good things. I think this passage is looking at those of us who would desire to be 
Jesus' true disciples, those who would desire to truly follow Jesus, it's looking us square in the eyes and it's saying, okay, what are you going to do about the idols in your life? What are you going to do about the skewed priorities in your life? Now, I want to talk about two different kinds of idols. Christians have idols that we, we love to hate, ones that we agree are, are bad for us, almost universally agree are bad for us, like materialism or pride or popularity or pornography or sex. We know how these divert our attention from the Lord, and they leave us empty. But then there are idols I think that we love to love, if we're being honest with ourselves, well-intentioned ones like politics or the American dream or the nuclear family. These we can even elevate to the status of Christian values. Yet even good and well-intentioned things that we do as Christ followers can be idols when they cause Christ to lose priority in our lives. Uh, I have idols in my life, if you were wondering. Some of them are sort of like the scribes, not well-intentioned. They're reckless and they're thoughtless, and I know that they're bad idols. I know them well for myself. Uh, in a one-on-one -on -one or smaller conversation, I'd be happy to share those with you and invite you to pray for me about those. But I also um, have idols that I think are like Jesus' family, too. Pretty well-intentioned idols. Ones that aren't bad things, but ones that receive way too much attention and serve as poor substitutes for the things that only Jesus should be filling. Sometimes sleep can be an idol for me. Is that anybody else here? My family can be an idol for me. Sometimes my wife, when I'm watching a basketball game, will say, Wow, I've never heard you get that excited at church before. That's interesting. Sometimes food can be an idol for me. I don't think the first thing I thought this morning was, how can I love and serve God today? I think I thought, what's for breakfast? Idolatry is a root problem for us. And God knew this when he gave us the Ten Commandments. The first one, you shall have no other gods but me. That's the subtext for the other nine. Because these idols, these skewed priorities become a barrier to the fullness of relationship with God, the abundant life that God calls us to. I want to um, invite Katrina forward. We're going to pause for just a minute. She has asked to give testimony uh, to the church this morning about how God has been working in her life recently and how some of the experiences here at this church have helped her to reprioritize the place that God has in her life. So thank you for sharing with us. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> I, um, before I really dive into the story of what God has been doing in my life for the past year, I just want to say how good it is to be here. I, I can't remember the last time I was in the 845 service, but <laughs> there are so many friendly and familiar faces here, and I was greeted so warmly by so many people, and it's just a real blessing to be here this morning, so thanks for just extending the love of God. Um, but the story that I'm uh, going to share today starts in September of uh, 2015. I... Uh, had been experiencing depression for about five months at that point. And the week leading up to uh, the night that I'm going to be talking about was absolutely miserable. Uh, I 
had a lot of responsibilities for my job that I just totally failed in, made a lot of mistakes. Things were really hard in my friendships with people and school was overwhelming and there were a lot of um, environmental things that really contributed to how low this point in my life was. But um, this one night in September, I had been weeping for most of the day because of everything that was going on. Um, but something changed at one point uh, while I was just there by myself weeping. And all of a sudden, I started being attacked with these thoughts that were just telling me, you are worthless. No, you're worse than worthless. You harm people around you. You are doing more harm than good. And the people who are, you are closest with are the people who you are hurting the most. And all of these horrible thoughts were just swirling around in my mind and I could not break out of them. And they were the only thing I could think. And for, I don't even know how long it was, but long enough to convince me that all of this was true and that if it was, it would be better for everyone if I weren't here. Um, I decided to end my own life that night and uh, I got, God totally spared me, obviously, praise him, I'm here today. <laughs> um, but I saw uh, a, a friend came into my life that night before I was able to uh, do anything and most people would look at her and see a normal human being, but she is an angel. And uh, as soon as like a day after that happened, I looked back at it and I was like, wow, that was not me. Those thoughts were so foreign to me. That is nothing that I've ever heard before. I've never thought those things before. I don't want to die. I, uh, I don't know what happened. I think it was a spiritual attack. Those were lies that I was believing, and I could identify that. And um, then I started really working on my mental health for uh, the next three months or so, and things slowly got better, but never really got good until January. And uh, I started, um, I started a new job, and I was wildly unqualified for it, and I was uh, overwhelmed every day, and thought that it would be a really good idea to, uh, you know compensate for my failures by putting more work on myself and I tore my ACL uh, the day before the job started was on crutches for a good part of uh, this job and at some point in there was bedridden for almost three straight weeks and my depression was getting significantly worse and all of these things were happening and I just started feeling like wow I am such a burden like I can't do anything right I am letting all these people that I'm working with and for down I like need help to get around I can't even like get to the bathroom on my own I needed friends to like come pick me up and like push me in my wheelchair to get to work some days and like I I just started feeling like I am weighing everyone down and I stopped sharing with my friends what I was experiencing in uh, in my depression because I was like I'm already weighing on everyone in all of these other ways I can't make this worse for them I'm hurting everyone that I interact with just by being me already like I can't put more on them and um, so 
by the time my job ended in May, I was just so convinced that I, uh, I was harming everyone around me, that I, I was a tool for evil in this world, and that now that my job was over, I wasn't filling a necessary role anymore, and so I, uh, it, it was time for me to go again. Um, but I, at this time, was pretty convinced that ending my life would be really harmful to those around me. So I was like, okay, I can't interact with people anymore because that's hurtful to them. But I also can't die. So my long-term plan was survival. And I, uh, for six straight weeks, basically, I um, shut myself up in my room and didn't talk to anyone except my best friend, Anna. She's here today. Still supporting and loving me so much. She's amazing. I wish everyone had an Anna in their life. Okay. <laughs> and, um, but largely I was isolating myself from everyone. And I, um, it got to the point where I was like, okay, I can't stop myself from ending my own life anymore. Like, I need someone to do it for me. So I admitted myself to the hospital in June, and uh, if, if anyone wants to hear more details about any part of this story later, I would love to tell you, because this week in the hospital was absolutely far and above the best week of my whole life, which was very shocking to me, but God really used that week to uh, turn things around, and it was amazing, and in the aftermath of that, you know, things started getting better, and they would, there would be significant dips, you know, like a few days I would be good, and then I would be depressed again, and you know, um, things were slowly getting better, but I, I ended up making this commitment to whenever I am feeling good, I need to do things that I know are going to help me. So uh, for the first time in a couple of months, three weeks ago, I came to church here. Praise God. And uh, uh, during prayers of the people, when uh, Lars opened up the floor and, you know, asked if anyone had any prayer requests, I uh, raised my hand and I said, I have been struggling with and diagnosed with major depressive disorder and I want to be healed. And uh, so Lars prayed for me during prayers of the people, but then at the end of the service, he opened it up and uh, he said, okay, I'm gonna invite Katrina up here and anyone who wants to stay around and pray for her, like we're gonna have time of prayer for Katrina to be healed. And so, uh, a group of people after the 10 o'clock service three weeks ago stayed and laid hands on me and prayed for me. And it ranged from people who I'm really close with, some of you who are here today, to people that I have never even seen before. And it was this group of people that just lifted me up and I have never felt so loved or supported by the family of God. It was far and above the coolest experience I've ever had in this church. And, um, it was, it was really incredible. So thanks to Lars for setting that up and thanks to God for providing me with such a cool family. Uh, but two days after that happened, I was taking time to journal and pray. And I, uh, God just really brought everything together for the first time. And he made me recognize that 
the way that I had grown to see myself and the things that I was believing, these ideas that I am harming people, I am bringing other people down, I am only a burden, it would be better if I weren't here, were all lies that were spoken to me first in September and that I had come to believe them and allow them to absolutely control my life to be the most important thing to me and that they then affected absolutely every relationship I had, every action I took, the way I saw myself and God and others. And it had entirely destroyed my life. And um, so I identified this and I had a counseling appointment that night. I go see a counselor twice a week who is, I'm obsessed with her. She's absolutely wonderful and really loves the Lord. And uh, I told her that night that I recognized this and she's like, wow, that's really amazing. Uh, we need to take time to um, identify the truths that you're going to believe instead of these lies. And so we took time to call out what is true about me and about God and what God says about me and who I am and used all of that information and uh, scripture to um, really just say these lies are not valid. Like, I, I am loved by God and yeah, sure, there are going to be seasons when I need to be carried by other people in the family of God but there are also going to be seasons when I'm going to be able to reach out and, and help uh, bear other people's burdens. And when I am able to bear burdens with other people, like that is a joy to me. And I love doing that. And I never feel like they're a burden. I feel like it's a gift that we can grow closer together as we're doing that. And God just allowed me to see <laughs> the beauty of who he is and his family. And I was totally set free from believing that lie that I had uh, come to believe across this past year. And so I asked Lars if I could share today, basically because like I asked for healing in uh, church three weeks ago and two days after this church prayed for me, I was totally set free. I, I don't think I was actually healed from my depression, but God did give me the healing that I need, needed, and he allowed me to see the lies that I was believing and gave me victory over those. Just literally 48 hours after this church prayed for me, and I am so, uh, so grateful. So I wanted to uh, thank you and also just give testimony to God's goodness in my life. Katrina, we're so proud of you and we're really thankful for your story. I'm going to tie this together. Jesus is inside his family, he's outside calling for him. And he replies, who are my mother and brothers? And looking at those around him, he says, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see the contrast that is set up in this passage? The family is outside. The scribes are, are closed off to God, while the disciples are inside and they are at his feet. They're the, they're the ones that are closest to him and they are accepting the truth that he has, while those on the outside are suspicious and want to take him out. I think that these contrasts teach us something about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to 
attack our idols. Jesus was not focused on pleasing his family or his friends or the scribes, but his focus was to do the will of the Father. And he would give up his very family to do this. God had the authority and the priority in Jesus' life, even over his family. Some of his disciples had already learned that lesson. They'd given up their families long ago to follow him. God, through his son Jesus Christ, is the only rightful owner of the seat of priority in your life. Whether you recognize that this morning or not, that is true. But how often do we willfully kick him off the seat of our life for far less beneficial placeholders? How often do we dethrone him for our idols instead, even some of our well-intentioned idols? How often do we choose the lies of the world over the truth of Jesus Christ? How often do we ask Jesus, can you just take a shift off so that I can indulge in these other idols? Jesus' brothers and sisters and mothers are those who would courageously prioritize their life in such a way that Jesus is on the throne of their life, recognizing our propensity towards that which would pull us away from Jesus and actively resisting those things. These, Jesus says, are my brothers and my sisters and my mother, those who would seek to do the will of the Father, those who would give me a seat on the throne of their life. Katrina's story is such an answer to prayer for me and I know for many of you. Two things I love about her story that bring this text alive for me. First, when she identified the lies that she had believed and replaced them with the truth, that's when Jesus had space to regain a place on the throne of her life. That's when her whole self, body, mind, and spirit were able to be with Jesus. I have this visual of of Katrina after our time of praying together and recognizing some of those lies that she had believed. I have this visual of her being able to sit at Jesus' feet again and hear truth from him. Not skittishly worrying on the outside or inside in opposition, but just being with Jesus. When we tear down our idols, we create space at the feet of Jesus to hear from him. Second thing I love about Katrina's story is that she was able to identify and recognize the work of the enemy in her life that wanted to isolate her from other people. Wanted to keep her out of the room with Jesus, out of the room with the disciples, isolating her from other people. But Jesus says those who will resist these idols, those who will prioritize Jesus on the throne of their life, those who won't be left outside and isolated because they are brothers and sisters and mothers. No more isolation because this is the family of God. The call to Jesus to follow him is costly. It will cost you the idols that we know are bad for us, the sins that we carry, but it will also cost us the idols that we love to love because Jesus is unwilling to share his throne with anyone or anything else because nothing else is worthy of it. He won't endure casual commitments and skewed priorities. He is truth. And he is speaking to you right now. Will you reprioritize, cast down your idols, enter in and sit with Jesus? I know of no other way to combat idolatry than to simply be with Jesus and let him speak his truth over me. And when I do that, Jesus has his rightful place and I lose my isolation and I find strength in brothers and sisters and mothers that I didn't even know I had. 
And when Jesus is on the throne of our lives, what testimonies we will give, what stories of God's faithfulness we will continue to proclaim. Amen.